Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. We had a great show in front of a live audience at TU Dublin, the Grange Gorman campus on Wednesday as part of Science Week with thanks to Science Foundation Ireland. We're going to pay part of that show for you now where we spoke to a number of scientists and Keith Russell, an ultra runner, asking the question, is it possible to run forever? But first, we started with the news round. Here's that show. Uh, we're going to kick off reflecting on the week that was in science. And joining me is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU's School of Chemistry. So you're both very welcome. Ruth, our first story has to <laughs> really pure well when I pick these stories. They're good science stories, but our first story does have to do with sperm. It does have to do with sperm. And it's something we spoke Look about. Look at Susan giggling already. <laughs> it's a sad story, this one. It is a sad story. So it is about... a a new study looking at global sperm counts in human men. And the bad news is the, those counts are going down and down and down. Uh, so this is a work that was published in Human Reproduction Update. And what scientists did is they went back and they looked at not old sperm samples, lucky for them, but old data on sperm counts. And of course, they had to leave out people who, were, who had had a sperm sample taken because they were having challenges around fertility or some other medical issues. So it was quite difficult, actually, to get data on sperm. But what they Why would someone give sperm if they didn't have a problem? Well, I suppose for, they might have had general studies looking at sperm. Um, oh, they need to control fertility or controls like exactly. Right. Okay. So, so they, they did, and they they found they found they found about 150 sets of samples that they were able to use, which spanned over nearly 50 years, from 1973 uh, to 2018. They um, kept them fresh, though, right? They put them in the fridge or something. <laughs> they weren't samples, just the data. Okay, okay. They didn't have they didn't have okay. to go back okay. and look at 50 year old. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, so luck, lucky them. Um, but what they found was really the concentration has dropped by 50%. So it's gone down from around 100 million sperm per million to 49 million sperm per million. And why that's really worrying is we see reproductive challenges appearing in a significant way when we get to about 40 million sperm per mil. So, and of course, what's happened as well is the speed of the decline is, is, is increasing. Right. So when we look over recent years, the drop in sperm count is getting faster. And uh, do we know why this is happening? Well, we have a good idea, and that is probably pollution is one side. And actually, we spoke about that a while ago. Some of these forever chemicals, which we know are in all of our water supplies, um, these per and polyfluoroalkyl solution um, chemicals. So that seems to be one thing, because we know we have, we have data to show that that impacts on sperm count when um, the parents of men, uh, the, the, their mothers are exposed to these chemicals. But it's probably also lifestyle issues, things like stress, alcohol consumption, smoking, all of those things, the kind of modern lifestyle um, is having an impact. Uh, can you counteract this by having sex twice? <laughs> because if it's half the sperm count, <laughs> I'm not a great mathematician here, but like if you just do it twice, no. do, you, do you increase? I'm not a physiologist. Oh, okay. but, You've got but, that already, already. But right. I think there may be less in the second dose. <laughs> I see. Okay. But I didn't mean straight away. I didn't mean straight away. I meant, you know, more choices. So, no, but this is obviously a, a major issue. Um, what can we do about it? If it's environmental and it's all around us, like, is there anything we can do? Because there was, was a movie about this, wasn't there? What was the name of the movie? Anyone remember? 
about we, they were basically we, we reached that, zero fertility in the kind of the handmaid's tale is children. children are men children thank you it's great having a live audience Aiden is useless at this <laughs> oh it was him was it you do damn it we have a hive mind here yeah, exactly. tonight we can answer yeah. all the questions I think, I think it's a hive mind so yeah like is there anything we can do because obviously less yeah. humans is beneficial for the planet but it's sad for for people yeah, well, I mean, we've got to get the pollution thing under control. And actually, scientists are working on ways to get these forever chemicals out of the environment. So people like Susan are working on things like that. So solutions like that will help. Hurry up, Susan. The lifestyle issues, <laughs> yeah, the lifestyle issues are, are, are things we're going to have to address as well. So, I mean, I think all of this is telling us, we, and, and these trends are, are consistent. Now, just It's ironic of, because the, the tobacco companies marketed the cigarettes as a sex thing, right? And then at the same time, the sperm count was going down. Yeah. I mean, we've probably got better at counting things as well, which is, you would think we probably undercounted before, but some researchers say we overcounted right. before because we didn't have such good technology. But we've seen this trend now in lots and lots of different studies. And as mm. we know, in science, that's part of the kind of method. When you see the same trends over and over again, you have to pay attention. Okay. All right. Uh, Susan, our second story is a really cool one. And it has to do with one of my favorite subjects, which is moon dust. Yes. So this is quite a personal story because, um, so I'm... Uh, what? <laughs> like, how can you segue from that to... Go on. Uh, you'll, you'll find out. Okay. So um, as, as you said, I'm, I'm a chemist in, in Dublin City University and I've been really fortunate to be able to work with the European Space Agency over the last year on trying to produce samples that may stop moon dust from sticking to them because moon dust on the moon is a big problem. It is very sharp, very fine, there's no water there on the moon, as we know, or that we think. So they get everywhere. It's very dusty. And so they get... Kind of like sand and sex. But you said it. You said it. Um, and they get everywhere. I mean, they get to they get into caskets. They can disrupt seals um, on, on instruments. They no, not, not, not disrupt seals Ruth is like, no, Ruth is obsessed with seals. Not those seals. Different the kind seals of seals. Yeah. <laughs> But um, so I've been really lucky to be able to produce some samples in our, in our lab. Myself and a, a few of my um, team members have made surfaces that, two types of surfaces, ones that have no type of, they're very smooth surfaces, and then ones that have like a micron scale kind of structure on them, different kinds of materials and different kinds of surfaces. And then I, we've sent them to the European Space Agency and they've been affixed to a lunar rover um, that the United Arab Emirates have put together and it's going up on a Falcon 9 rocket on Tuesday. So the second of the Ooh. nicest Ooh. rockets. Um, thank you very much. So, um, well, so we're really, I mean, it's a big deal. I only, you know, kind of, we found out this week we're able to sort of now announce it. So it's brilliant. Just the idea of something that, especially the students that have worked on this over the last few years, you know, getting these samples together in a very short space of time. I was telling Bruce, you know, we, we got them together quite quickly and they've passed all the tests and, you know, they've, they've not fallen apart, which is great. <laughs> um, and now they're, they're hopefully going to be sent up. They're, uh, they're being sent up on, on Tuesday and, and they'll orbit the moon and then hopefully land and the little rover will come out with the DCU samples on it and roll around. And what, what, what we're going to get the information is basically these high resolution cameras that are looking at these surfaces. And then we're going to see what kinds of surfaces will repel moon dust and which, which aren't very good at it. And that'll give a bit of information back to people trying to get to the moon. Because you, you want, you want the, the, the dust not to stick to stuff mm -hmm. so that yeah. it continues to work for a very long time. Yeah. Why don't you just do the tests on 
moon dust you make here? Yeah, moon dust is really hard to make. It's very hard. To, yeah, it's very hard to make. Um, it's <laughs> we do have. So our, my colleague in my collaborator in in ESA, um, he's working on kind of these sort of. Um, fake moon dusts but they're um they're not the same you know and there was this opportunity to to have the chance of actually looking at a real moon dust um i think there's some moon dust going to be collected by um the japanese um collaborators involved as well so i guess there'll be some coming back down but it's quite hard to get actually moon dust are very not readily available um, are, are, the, so. <laughs> are the are the emirati um going to land in a safe place because the last one i read about crashed into them and that'd be bad wouldn't it yeah so that's what we're hoping doesn't happen um no guarantees this is the first lander that this company called ispace they're the japanese company that are producing the lander that the rover's going to, into so they they they're hoping that this is their this is their first chance to send something up into orbit and to land so Hopefully they've done all their simulations correctly and <laughs> hopefully they know how they're going to land it. Um, but I, I mean, by all accounts, it looks like it's, you know, I think we have a, a good shot, I'd say, at getting but, there, hopefully. Very good. Uh, okay, our third story, Ruth, um, has to do with the official, the first official approval, it seems, of poo transplants. You've got the great story. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Yeah. So we've talked about poo transplants a few times on the show and i guess it's a it's a really growing area because if if you think about each of us we're about 50% human and about 50% microbes there are I microbes. thought you were going to say 50% poo I was like, is it that much <laughs> no but rough, rough figures here uh, but you know so, and, and and i suppose over the last couple of decades scientists have been looking at how all of those different microbes that live on us and in us impact on our health and our well-being. And it turns out they have a pretty big impact, which isn't that surprising when they're kind of half and probably more than half of our genetic material. Um, so, for example, if you take a faecal transplant from a young mouse and put it in an old mouse, you reverse some of the signs of ageing. Um, and in people, one of the uses of healthy poo has been to try and deal with a, an infection that's very hard to get rid of, uh, Clostridium difficile. And there's some patients, particularly immunocompromised patients, if they have this infection, traditional antibiotics won't work and it can actually be fatal in some cases. But what they've scientists have found is that uh, a transplant of poo from a healthy donor into someone that has this C. diff can help to get rid of it. And then once it's gone, it can help to kind of repopulate that person's gut with healthy microbes, kind of regrowing a healthy forest inside the gut again. This has been going on in clinical trials in people, and it's been going on in the States under what the FDA call enforcement discretion, which I think means <laughs> we're going to not, we're going to kind of turn a blind eye, so we don't really know what this is. It's not a medical device and it's not a drug, but we're not going to come after you. If we're, going to let you we're going to let you stick poo up someone and that, so we're not going to ask any questions. Exactly. Just, <laughs> okay. We don't want to know. Okay, okay. yeah, exactly. So, That's exactly. We've got very prudish people in, uh, in the FDA. So, so it has been happening. It's very, very difficult to become a poo donor. Um, there's incredibly rigorous standards, because actually... A lot of competition as well, I don't <laughs> Well, well, actually, somebody did die from a poo transplant where they weren't screening for a form of E. coli uh, that they now do screen for. Um, by, by giving? By giving a, a transplant. So they screened for other things, but they hadn't actually screened for this E. coli and it was given to an immunocompromised person. Oh, sorry. No, not the person who gave the poo. They, no. they didn't die. They didn't die. No, okay, no, no. Right, okay. So they actually now, apparently in the community, they call people who can donate poo unicorns because they're hard to find. <laughs> But the story is, the story is that Australia have now formally approved 
faecal transplants, poo transplant as a treatment. And, and we are seeing that now going ahead under full approval for treating things like C. difficile. And, and I actually think it's great because we're seeing so much more science now that says a healthy microbiome is very, very good for you. A healthy and diverse microbiome, it helps with all sorts of things from stress to obviously your overall health, your ability to resist infection. So it's really exciting to see a whole kind of new branch of medicine on the straight and narrow, as opposed to in the, we don't want to talk about it. Yeah, uh, and uh, not, not just staying away from the pure stuff from an actual technical um, point of view, they take the sample from a stool, presumably. Do they put it inside, um, do they put it inside the stomach? Is it swallowed? Is it in a pill or is it, how is it done? It's not, it's not in a pill yet, I'm afraid. <laughs> there are some companies looking at that. So they have special toilets now that will collect the poo sample from the donors okay. in certain places. Obviously, it's screened very extensively um, for, for bacteria. It's basically then put in a blender, um, it's uh-huh. frozen, uh-huh. Uh, and then it's attached to a colonoscopy equipment. I see. And so it just... just goes up. But okay. they are looking at pills and things for the future. Okay, very good. Uh, I'm excellently navigated, Ruth. Well done. Um, <laughs> Our fourth story has to do with dancing rats, Susan. Dancing rats, yes. So um, this has videos <laughs> that you can watch if anyone is so interested. Yeah, you um, can see them on our Twitter page, <laughs> at News Talk Science. It, um, it's a paper that was published this week in Science Advances, and um, it's looking at Japanese, Japanese researchers wanted to figure out whether or not rats would dance to music. Um, so you have to, again... <laughs> There's often these stories where you wonder why, but we'll get to the why in a few okay. minutes. But um, I suppose the question that he was trying to figure out was, there was one main thing was, um, first of all, see if we know the humans, okay, we're very, very good at keeping rhythm, very good at keeping time. Um, now, people vary, of course, in their yeah. abilities to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, as a, as a species, we're quite good. We can tap our toes, etc. But um, first of all, there, there's an interest of whether or not other mammals do this. It, um, it's called beat synchronization. And the second thing that they were, were trying to figure out is um, humans are really good at keeping a beat in a very certain tempo. So 120 to 140 beats per minute. And it's basically the tempo of walking, um, walking fast at 120 or 140 is like running quite fast. But this is the time that we're naturally in sync with and we we, be, we we can tap our toes along to this really really well um, but mammals so like something like GABA music or mo- like heavy techno we can't keep the beat as well no, yeah we can't exactly if it's too fast or like so, arias and stuff yeah too that. slow I mean you'll, but you will find this it's very common so the, the guys in this um in the study they used Mozart but again it's also like Queen and Lady Gaga like it's not it doesn't really matter about the rest of it it's yeah. just the beat okay. um, but animals move much faster than humans especially rats they're very very fast so they wanted to know whether or not rats kind of kept their own rhythm to their own world or, or, or not so what they did was they got um, 50 rats and they put a little <laughs> it, it, it looks a bit like a pizza box on top and in it had a little like kind of um, a motion sensor um, device that would watch where the head went and basically looked at the, the movement up and down of the head and the nodding of the head wow. um, and they played music so they played music for four different tempos they picked um, this Mozart sonata for two pianos in D major um, K448 can anyone hum that? anyone? <laughs> <laughs> you look like a very educated audience <laughs> No? Okay. So chosen, so it has a beat per minute of 132. And then they ch- slowed it down a bit, 75% to 99 beats per minute, and then ramped it up to 264 and to 528, thinking that the rats might catch the, the higher ones. Um, and they observed that just to be safe and to be sure and to have good controls, they asked some people to do it as well. So they got participants, you know, human participants, to also wear these types of contraptions. And... Um, 
they noticed that the, both the rats and the humans got in sync, kind of. They didn't, like, get in sync together dancing, but they fell, they, they nodded at around the same beats per minute, which was the one, three, two. So Mozart had it right. He, he nailed his tempo um, back in the day. Well, well Dr. Shane Bergen, um, who's on the programme regularly, he is always a great way of coming up with some reason why this research he's just talked about is useful. And often, I'm often, I'm, I, I can sort of see where he's coming from. Why on earth <clears throat> do we want to know if rats can keep time to ice tea. Yes. Why, why, do we, why do we? Why do we care? So, so the argument that the the authors made was that um, well, first of all, they they wanted to to see there's a little bit of an, an inert understanding inertness and under, understanding our inert ability to keep rhythm because people can learn and, and animals can be trained to react to music. So there's an element of understanding mammals' inertness, uh, inert ability to keep rhythm, but also um, there's this idea that if there's a universal rhythm. Um, and a tempo that all of life sort of taps along to without us knowing it. So there may be ideas around where dance evolved and where music itself came from. This right. was their selling point. Okay, they obviously, yeah. they got into an excellent journal, so I'm sure they, they convinced somebody. <laughs> um, maybe not everybody. But no, but it, I mean, it, it certainly it's all very significant in terms of these are legitimate reactions from these rats. I'd love to see the the, the room of the, the dancing rats. Um, you can see the video. It's on our Twitter page, at News Talk Science. As always, thank you so much, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from DCU School of Chemistry, Dr. Susan Keller. All right, stay with us uh, for our show in front of TU Grange Gorman as part of Science Week. Well, welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. We are live in front of TU Grange Gorman for Science Week. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, we have a fantastic audience here, and uh, the theme of uh, Science Week is uh, exploring the infinite, infinite possibilities of science. And so that kind of inspired us to kind of ask some questions about uh, things that go on forever. And um, I, I'm, I'm not hugely a big fan of running. You know that feeling um, when the weather is nice and you just throw on your shoes and the open road is in front of you and you feel limber and invigorated, like you could just keep running forever? Well, for me, that feeling lasts about three minutes before I start moaning and feeling sorry for myself and I start to feel the taste of blood in my mouth. And I can play football for two hours. I just, running, I don't know what it is. I just, oh my God, I can't stand it. But that's not the case for everybody. And some people can keep running for much, much longer than three minutes. Uh, ultra runners can run whole marathons and still keep going. But if you had a really great athlete with the right motivation under the right conditions, could they conceivably run forever? That's a question we're going to be asking our panel. And uh, we're joined by Professor Helen French, Associate Professor in the RCSI School of Physiotherapy, Dr. Oren Kennedy, Senior Lecturer in Anatomy and Regenerative Medicine at RCSI, Sinead Bradbury, who's a performance nutritionist, and Keith Russell, who is an ultra runner currently ranked third in the world. You're all very welcome. So, so Keith, we're going to start with you, if that's okay, because I'm fascinated with this <laughs> with this thing that you do. So, uh, first off, define, please, what is uh, an ultra marathon and what is a backyard ultra? What do you do? Um, so, basically, an ultra marathon would be ending over marathon distance. Normally, we would class an ultra marathon as 50k plus. Um, backyard ultra is <laughs> completely different. So, backyard ultra is you have to do 6.7 kilometers every hour. You have to be on the start line to go again at the top of the next hour. You can do it as fast or slow as you want. Um, 
if you do it in 40 minutes, you get 20 minutes rest. You do it in 50 minutes, you get 10 minutes rest. And it just keeps going until there's no one else left in the race. Everyone else, everyone else in the race is official DNF. So, 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 there's no, so, so you basically just keep on going until everybody else has collapsed. Pretty much, yeah. That's <laughs> so, how it is. Yeah. So how, how long does that race like that go on for? So I done one in May where I finished second in the world and we done for 89 hours covering 597 kilometers. Oh, <laughs> oh. I, that does deserve a round of applause. So, so I'm trying to get my head around that. That is absolutely <laughs> insane. So for me, hitting, you know, that first wall after three or four minutes, and that's not a joke. Like, I really hate it, right? <laughs> what, what do you go through um, as a runner? Like, what, what, what do you go through to, to, to get there? Like, what sort of feelings of... Everything. Uh, <laughs> so take, take me through it. Like, so wh- and, and when um, it happens. Well, see, with the Backyard Ultra, it's different because, because it's slow. You can walk 6.7 kilometers in an hour, no yeah. problem. Um, but because you want to get that bit of rest, you want to bank time because you want to last for so long. Um, you, I normally do about 47 minutes. Get, like, you, you sleep for probably an hour within the 24 hours. So I was running for nearly four days and I slept for probably about three hours overall. Um, wow. The thing with the backyard is, as opposed to any other ultramarathon is, any ultramarathon, you can sleep for as long as you want. You can sleep for an hour or two and then get going again. With the backyard, you have to be on the start line at the top of the hour. If you're not in the crowd with three minutes to go or on the, the last bell, you're, you're out. It sounds like something from Dante's Inferno. <laughs> uh, it's like The Walking Dead. <laughs> so, so, um, so that and the, and the long distance ones that, that you do, what, what does your body go through? At what point do you start breaking down? At what point do you start thinking, oh, this is not good? Um, well, with the backyard, it's more sleep deprivation is, is what happens um, because you're only getting like four minutes sleep or five minutes sleep every hour during the day you can't really sleep because there's a lot of noise around there's a lot of people around so that's at night is where it happens and you're like I was walking up a hill and I I'd fallen asleep walking and I woke up talking um, and I thought it was somebody beside me I turned to look and there was nobody there um, I, and you just go oh jeez here we go and just kept walking on up the hill so yeah, yeah you just recognise at that point you wouldn't think I might give this up now not really no no you just recognise it and you just keep going you just have to get back around that's that's all and like isn't a marathon like good enough like why wouldn't you just do a marathon <laughs> what, like, why, that's good enough for most of us why, why? It's tough. <laughs> but, but why, what, what drove you to keep doing this, Keith? Um, so I only started running in 2016, and I, I was st- started running to run with my daughter, Alana. So she was eight. Um, she had cerebral palsy, and we ran Dublin City Marathon in 2017. She's still currently the uh, youngest ever participant and finisher of Dublin City Marathon. But she passed away six weeks after that. Um, she passed away suddenly at home. So I went into... F- you know, being out running on my own, um, process and everything that was going on helped me a massive amount. And I done my first ultramarathon in 2019. I ran from Dublin to Belfast. So uh, it was something about running from city to city or south to north mm. that uh, sort of caught my eye. So it was 107 miles. I finished third in 18 hours and 20 minutes. Oh my God. So you sort of realize that you have a talent for it. Mm. Um, and when you put that weight of a drive to, to work hard, um, to train and put everything into it, then you, you sort of excel in what you want to do. 
So, um, Sinead, I might go to you um, to talk a little bit about wh- how you prepare for an event like that and what, you know, when you're an extreme athlete or an, a- an athlete at the top level, because mm. I know you work with those, um, what sort of preparation do you have to put in to, to get ready for that um, from a food and from a fitness point of view or an, and a mental point of view? Yeah, there's a huge amount of work goes into it, Jonathan. It doesn't just happen, basically. Um, and for races like that and endurance events like Keith is talking about, you have to think about, I suppose, being a healthy individual to begin with. You know, you have to be eat well and balanced and high fibre and cut for fruit and vegetables. But closer it gets to the actual endurance side of things, carbohydrates become massively important. And really for events that, that Keith is talking about, you're looking at carb loading three days beforehand to build the stores. Um, and then on the race itself, you're really looking at every hour, making sure that you're having an intake of carbohydrates between 30 and 60 grams. We have to work with how much we can absorb as well. And like um, athletes would be working on, you know, gut tolerance to be able to absorb it and to be, you know, to understand what foods are working for you and to time hydration and to get salts in, you know, from sweat losses. So it's a whole science um, and there's a lot to it. And really you become an expert in yourself because it varies between um, athlete to athlete. I'm sure, Keith, you have changed things and evolved as, as you've progressed and um, that's how it works. You become an expert in yourself then, yeah. So carbohydrates is massively important. And, and so um, over the course of this exercise, what are you losing? If we think about this this thought experiment of, of, of Keith running forever, <laughs> um, what, what are we losing when we exercise that we have to keep replenishing or Keith will fall down? Well, glycogen is stored in the body. You can take carbohydrates and glycogen is stored in the body. And that's what, you know, is you have to replenish a lot of. But then we have to look after our muscles and repair those as well and that protein intake. And there's a whole, like, really, you can cause a lot of damage, Jonathan, if you're not... Um, refueling and fueling to the intensity of your sport. Even like relative energy deficiency in sport is a, is a condition that if you're not fueling correctly, um, you can be prone to injury, you can really massively negatively affect your immune system, your mood. And in, in women, we can lose our menstrual cycle and our period. So, and that can have effect again on so many different areas. Like it's called amenorrhea. So that's a big problem as well that, you know, we need to get out there about fueling correctly for whatever sport you're doing. Right. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, gut tolerance, this wasn't something I thought of, mm. but I suppose you, your gut needs to be able to keep taking that uh, that intake. Keith, you're nodding your head. Is that a Absolutely. difficult thing to do? To, are you doing gels? And what, what are you no. what are you eating? And, and how do you get that energy quickly because you need it right there and then? So in the backyard, ultra, I burn fifty thousand calories, which is massive amount. Like so within four days, I could see I'd lost weight. But gels, gels are just gels will run you. You know, there's too much sugar in them. You're not going fast enough to burn that amount of sugar. Okay. Um, so you're taking solid foods. You're taking fried potatoes. You're taking cheese. You know, your fats, carbohydrates, as Sinead was saying. And you just have to you basically try to eat normal to what your stomach can take in. Everything is done in training. Um, so I, can, I know I can take up to 70 um, grams of carbohydrate every hour. If I go over that, I'll get sick. Um, if I go under that, I lose energy. Right. So it is a very, very much balance. Now I can take that. Another athlete might might only take might take more, might take less. Completely athlete dependent. Okay. And then um, in this saw style scenario that we've created, like where uh, Keith has to keep running, if we uh, if we um, hooked him up to a drip and gave him the water he needed, the salts he needed, and the energy he needed, what, what format would that be in? And would he be able then, in, from an energy point of view, would he able to keep, be able to keep running? 
We're not bringing in the treadmill now. Yeah, we're not. Let's <laughs> let people know. Can I say, our, our producer is laughing because we actually were going to get you a treadmill. That's not a joke. Dancing rats and everything. Um, so, no. like, you know, when we think of all the things we lose, if you if we put them on a drip and, and, and keep them running. I think it's an interesting concept. I think it's, it really is. Um, I, I'd be thinking if, if you're going days and days, you know, you have to have vitamins and minerals, you have to have salts, you'd have to have. But I'd be just concerned about, you know, you can get the carbs into you and you can get the, the glue and but it's the protein after a certain amount of time like what happens to your actual muscles and your tendons and how how do you bypass that because we know you can get intravenous you know liquids and fluids but you know it's the protein I don't know can you can, can that be sustainable for you know how does that get absorbed into the body we're just going to pause it there for a second you're listening to future proof on news talk I'm Jonathan McRae this is a recording of the show that we did in front of a live audience at TU Dublin in the Grange Gorman campus where we've been talking about the science of running and hearing from Keith Russell, an ultra marathon runner. We'll continue the conversation in just a bit after these. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. We're bringing you a special episode of the programme that was recorded in front of a live audience with thanks to Science Foundation Ireland for Science Week at the TU Dublin Grange Gorman campus. We were joined by Helen French and Oren Kennedy from RCSI, Sinead Bradbury, a performance nutritionist, and Keith Russell, an ultra runner who's currently ranked third in the world. We're going to talk about injuries now and, and we'll go um, to Helen, but um, what, what sort of injuries do you get when you do ultra marathons? Um, my pelvis jammed. So my pelvis sort of rotates like this yeah. and this one just wasn't rotating and it caused my hip flexor to tighten up. So I was getting pains down the inside of my leg and in around my knee. So I was at an osteopath, I have to go again tomorrow and I'm just doing mobility stretches really. But like, I mean, even just the friction of the clothes you're wearing or your feet and the shoes or, I mean, do you get sort of, does your skin sort of start coming off or like, I mean, like, I just can't imagine running that far. A lot of Vaseline. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Blisters is mostly on your feet, your toes. Um, Yeah, I could show you pictures of my feet after a race and it's not, it's not nicely. Now, you have grand feet now after a while, but lose a few toenails and blisters and blood. You take off your sock and there's just blood everywhere you know you don't realize at the time so focused <laughs> <laughs> like what are you doing to yourself crazy man god you must really love it like that the idea of like taking off my sock and there's a whole lot of blood and some toenails like that's and that once that happened once to be honest that would be it <laughs> uh, so so Helen what about injury uh, I mean the, the, we want our body to repair but in this hypothetical scenario we really want it to repair quickly can you talk, talk to us about the sort of injuries that you get and the sort of lows that we have when we do this sort of exercise yeah and this this type of any kind of endurance sport it's the injuries are always more likely to be those overload injuries and you know sometimes it's not even the event itself it's all the training that has to be done because you know I'm sure Keith doesn't just rock up and and start running there's been hours and days of months of training Um, but when we when I suppose as a physio the types of structures that I would be thinking about in terms of injuries are Sinead has talked about our muscles and our tendons um, but also our joints and our bones so um, most of those will will repair 
you know, and they're, they go through a, a process of repair. Not all of them will. And, and I'm sure Orrin will talk to that as well. But I suppose our body... Our body is really adaptable. I mean, I 100% believe that. And, and Keith is proof of that. And we have extreme athletes doing crazy stuff. Um, and we know that the body will adapt and it adapts to load that's put on it. For example, if you take our bones, so the peak of our bone mass really occurs during our adolescence into our early 20s. And we need load, right? So we need load to build that strength in our bones, in our muscles, in our tendons, and, and even within our joints. So, so it's, it's really important that we do that. You know, it's really important that we, we have those like running and all of these kind of loading types of um, activities. But the problem is it's all about balance, you know? So like for me, I don't think it's, it's a, um, a kind of a natural thing to run forever because... Yeah. The body, you've got, it's all about an imbalance. You know, you're overloading and where you need, you have to unload, you have to remove that load to to allow things to recover. In terms of um, muscles and tendons and so on, how long would they last? I mean, if, they are, if, if you're getting all of the nutrients you need and so on, uh, will they last for forever or at what time, you know, how much... How much load can they take? How much um, contraction and, and expansion do they take before they they go? Yeah, well, let's take muscles because muscles are, are contractile. So they, you know, when we're, when we're exercising, we're contracting muscles, relaxing muscles. And so there is a, um, there is a rest period in, in muscles. But actually, muscles adapt over time as well. So we have different types of muscle fibres. So people are often familiar with the idea of the slow twitch fibres and then our fast twitch fibres. And if you, if you looked at, um, let's say, Keith's, profile of muscle fiber type versus a sprinter's oh. <laughs> they would be they would be quite different you know because he he's his body has adapted to being able to run at kind of a slower pace over long periods versus your your sprinter who's flat out for you know whatever um 10 seconds right so um so i suppose how long so then there's no there's no magic answer about how long they last but I suppose when when if when when I come across them or a physio comes across them is when they start to get symptoms. So that'll tell you that at some point somebody has overloaded something, and for lots of reasons. And then you ha that means now it, it's not lasting forever because it becomes symptomatic, it becomes painful, um, and now they can't perform at the at the level they're they're supposed to be at. What about um, cartilage? How um, durable is that? Is that a short-term thing? Do we run out of good cartilage protecting our bones very quickly, Helen? No, I don't think so. Um, I'd like to think we don't. So cartilage is is that kind of gristly bit in the joint. It, it really is a shock absorber and it allows movement at a joint. And cartilage is one of the more unique tissues in the body because it doesn't repair, doesn't have a blood supply, doesn't have a nerve supply. So it doesn't regenerate and hence Oren's work that he'll talk about later. But um, cartilage still has to life us, last us the, the, our, a lifetime, okay? When it doesn't last a lifetime, that's when people get things like osteoarthritis. So, you know, we, we hear of this kind of degenerative arthritis. Not all joints get that, more, more common in, in some joints than others. But certainly um, there's lots of risk factors for arthritis. It's not just that it wears out. There's lots of reasons why it becomes a, a, um, symptomatic and a problem. But certainly cartilage adapts again over time to, to load and to, you know, to what, what is required in our daily lives. And it has really unique properties when it comes to friction, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does. I'm a little bit obsessed with uh, with cartilage joints, and it's a it's a fantastic material from a mechanical point of view, and obviously from a biological point of view as well. So every bit of movement that any of us don't does at any, in any part of your body, it's always facilitated by cartilage, and it's one of these materials. Um, as Helen said, it, you're all, you're all probably familiar with it. If you've ever had ever had your you know your Sunday dinner chicken leg or whatever, or a sneaky snack box or whatever, the little white bit at the end of the chicken bone, that's to me one of the most amazing materials that we have. <laughs> right, the friction properties are unbelievable. If I could do a little example without giving people cold sweats of going back to a physics class, a coefficient of friction is just a number that ha- that says how slippy something is. If it's a high coefficient of friction, you've got good grip. We put it that way. So let's say me rubbing my hands together has a, a high coefficient of friction. Ice against ice has quite a low coefficient of friction in comparison to that. Cartilage on cartilage has an order of magnitude lower than that. Again, that's how slippy cartilage is. Wow. And even though we're um, working hard, I promise, on, on how to regenerate this stuff, we can get nowhere close to native cartilage at this point at all, nowhere close to it, because it's, it's an amazing, amazing material. So your work is in uh, regenerative medicine. Uh, tell me a little bit about the stuff that um, that we could fix in Keith's body um, after this experiment. What what sort of uh, things are we are we already able to regenerate in the lab? So I think a lot of the things that end up breaking down are, are the sort of mechanical parts of the body. So bones and cartilage and muscle and tendon and all of that. So all of these things regenerate all the time. And it's something that you might notice because it happens sort of quietly. So an example I often give for the bones in your body, the physical stuff that keeps us all together, the bones in your body, actually, most of them, most people think of them as being sort of inert things. You know, when you see a skeleton or whatever, and it's laying there and it, it lasts for hundred years or whatever. But in life, they, they, it turns over, it regenerates itself actually quite regularly, even though you might not notice it. Really? The example I often give is 20-year-old Jonathan and 40-year-old Jonathan, by mass, your skeleton has been completely replaced-ish, give or take. Wow. So, you have a whole new, so it happens all the time, but you don't notice it. And it only becomes a problem when you kind of go outside the comfort zone. So if you start running for five days straight or whatever, these, these things start, start to break down because you can't keep pace. Your, your repair mechanisms can't keep pace. So how we try to kind of develop new treatments, I suppose, is learn how that process works normally um, and apply it to cases where, where it goes wrong, you know. So that's, that's the sort of approach we take with things like bone tissue regeneration and cartilage tissue regeneration and things like that. So, so um, in terms of uh, regenerative medicine, where are we at? Like, could we, you know, it, it, in terms of his feet, can we, can we regenerate skin? Can we regenerate... Um, I haven't grown a new foot yet in the lab. But, you know, <laughs> we, are, we are working but on But we can do things like, we, we're, we're getting close to doing livers, right? Or pieces of livers, we're getting close so to... Liver is a great example, actually, because liver is one of the most regenerative organs in your body. You can remove... Don't quote me on this now, but you can remove a large part of your liver, 80% of a liver, and it will regenerate to its full-ish size, more or less. You can remove a huge wow. part of the liver. So that's a really, it's a good sort of model regenerative. So we don't need we to re- regenerate the liver by the sounds of it. What's that? We don't need to regenerate the liver. It's by very the good at doing this stuff. It's not perfect, but it's, it's one of the model organ, uh, organs that uh, people look to in terms of regenerate, re- regeneration. So uh, liver is really good. And there's a whole spectrum. You know, your skin regenerates all the time. You know, all the dust in a room is mostly from your skin that you shed. So that regenerates all the time. Internal organs, um, you know, your intestines and stuff like that, they, they regenerate all the time. And some stuff is very, very slow. So bones, as I mentioned, do regenerate, but it happens much more slowly. Some parts of, of brain and other organs regenerate quite slowly. But there's, but there's a whole spectrum. And the, the technique, I suppose, or the approach that we take is try and understand and learn how it works normally. See if we can kind of harness it in the lab, figure out how to use it and figure out how to apply it to <coughs> situations, whether it's, whether it's ultra running or whether it's a disease or whether it's something else where you can, where you can use it as a treatment and, and put it to good use. Can we get um, genes or 
or um, bits from other animals and stick them in humans so that they regenerate better, you know, like salamanders or, or anything like that. So is there? salamanders, another great regenerative example that we look to and we try to kind of harness understand how they work and, and harness what we do. There's a couple of specific examples of that actually in, in the skeletal system, for example. So in bone regeneration, uh, we look to other animals where they do it very well. And just for example, if you've ever been up in Phoenix Park around rutting seasons, so deer every year, they grow basically a, a big extra part of their skeleton, their antlers are bones. And they, and they shed them and then they grow them again next year. So they've got a great capacity to regenerate bones. We, people are studying that and getting you know, tips and tricks from them on that. Uh, another example at the other end of the spectrum is if you want to prevent bone from disappearing. So at the other end of the spectrum, you have osteoporosis where your bone tissue disappears. Bears hibernate and they lie there for six months not using their bones and they don't disappear. So that's another animal that we actually try and learn from in terms of how their skeleton works. Really cool. In terms of nutrition, um, Sinead, does, does the food we take in help that process of regenerating quickly? Is that possible? I mean, I know we say we are what we eat, but how, how do we measure what sort of foods improve regeneration of the things we need to exercise, um, even just regularly, let alone keep stuff. Again, it goes back, Jonathan, to balanced eating. There's a lot of research going into collagen supplementation now as well, and glucosamine and MSM and um, even glutamine that helps to rebuild um, cells, and especially epithelial linings, and so vitamin C is important. So protein is one of the most important factors in general. Great. And in terms of um, your own experiences, uh, Keith, how much do you look to science and evidence? How much do you adopt new techniques in, in terms of d increasing your ability to perform uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the road? It's absolutely massive. You know, um, as I was saying to you earlier on, like a 100 metre sprinter looks to gain 0 0.01 of a second. An ultra runner looks to gain like an extra lap or an extra hour. Um, and anything that we can do to, to get me that far... Um, we take it on board and it's all trial and error when you're going that distance some things are going to work for you some things aren't um, recovery is a massive factor for me and believe it or not my best friend one of my best friends is my physio and he, he, <laughs> hates, he hates to see me come. <laughs> he says I've tested him in so many ways. <laughs> I, bet, I bet you have. So, so I mean listening to everything you've heard uh, Keith like when you look through the journey you go through physically um, and mentally, what, what are the, the big barriers that you hit? Because you say you, you go through everything, but mm. what are the bits where you say, that's it, I'm done? What is it you're feeling um, that, that, that says, I'm gone? Is it the pain in the joints? Is it the mental, um, is it the lack of sleep? Is it, uh, is it being out of fluids or out of, uh, out of food? Um, there's only one race I've ever DNF'd in, and that was when I finished second in Germany after doing 89 hours. Um, I've done three backyard ultras and I've won two in Ireland. I had to go outside of Ireland to go as far as, far as I could go. Um, and I think it was down to my central nervous system. I was getting blisters on my tongue. I couldn't really eat. Um, I was getting a lot of phlegm on my chest um, and I was coughing for long periods of time. I was coughing for probably for about 10 hours. Um, and I came, we left on the 90th hour and I went to go up. We got down through a valley and then you go up on the far side and I got up on the far side and I was struggling. And that was the first time I ever called it a day, turned around, went back. Unbelievable <laughs> stuff. Uh, Keith Russell and our panel, everybody. And thank you to you, our fantastic audience. Really appreciate having you here. And thank you so much for the support. Have a great Science Week. As we said, this uh, 
programme was brought to you with Science Week and Science Foundation Ireland. So thanks very much to them for their support ongoing on the programme. Aidan McKelvey, producer and um, the wizard behind the live show, joins me now to uh, talk about your uh, comments and text from last week. It, it went well, though, the, the live show, didn't it? Yeah, it was good fun as well. It's a, it's a good while. We haven't done one since the 10th anniversary show, which I think was 2019. So uh, I felt, it felt rusty. I was I was feeling nervy. I had that performance anxiety beforehand, but it was uh, it was great. I'm not, I yeah, but like, don't, I you spend your, don't you spend your whole... Didn't you spend like 10 years on stage performing with the Gandhis? I did, I did. Uh, and one of the ways in which I am like Marvin Gaye, <laughs> or like to think I'm like Marvin Gaye, is that okay. I was really, really nervous before all my performances and I never really got over those nerves and apparently needed a Marvin Gaye so I always felt good about that if it's good enough for Marvin it's good enough for me yeah I think PJ Gallagher the comedian says that he gets extremely nervous when he's about to go on stage and do uh, stand-up comedy like throwing up nervous it's an awful thing like I do get nervous but I think I've gotten over that although it's very dependent isn't it depends on what your audience and the occasion is like if it's a really big deal then you're definitely going to get nervous um so we were talking last week about gravity batteries, which I just thought were such a cool, simple and neat way to store energy. The idea is you basically get a very heavy weight and you use excess energy to lift up the weight. And then when you want the energy back, you just let the um, the weight fall and take the energy from that. Um, we got one text from a listener who says, I just got my electricity bill from Airtricity. When did wind double in price? The ripoff continues. Nothing I can do about that. Maybe gravity batteries will help, but uh, nothing I can do about that. So I'll let you into a little bit of a secret. Every once in a while, I sort of feign not knowing something because I need to hear more about it in the interview. Um, but Garota Sullivan said, kind of surprised you hadn't heard of pumped energy storage as it was something we did in geography in school many moons ago. Turlock Hill is the example we heard about. Would love to hear a segment on tidal power sometime. Love the show. I had I had heard of it, um, but I had forgotten that Turlock Hill was uh, pumped energy storage. But yeah, that's a similar idea, and I think a, a really clever one. There, there was talk about something, I think it was called like the Pride of Ireland or the Ho- Ireland's Hope or something, and it was a proposed tidal system on the east, on the west coast of Ireland that would basically, uh, when the tide came in, it would fill up, and then as the water came back out, it would push and create pressure and therefore create energy. And they were thinking of like just cutting off a small segment of unpopulated coast in Ireland to create it. And it would be amazing resource for power, but it never got off the ground. And I don't know why it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, it's strange. I actually know people who were involved in trying to get tidal power off the ground as well. And uh, I think like there was like a French, the French energy, a French energy company is that EDF got involved and it just seemed to stagnate for some reason. I don't know what, if there's a problem with the technology mm. or if they're just if it's one of these things that just takes so long to develop it. But it seems like it would be the best solution, tidal, because it's not obviously dependent on weather. It's just going to go in and go out, go in and go out, go in and out, and it's really reliable, uh, as almost as reliable as gravity. So it's very strange that that, especially in Ireland, hasn't been something we've harnessed. Um. Jeremy Keeney says gravity storage of power is a great idea but surely it would be better to use old abandoned mines than to use precious resources building giant towers I was the one who said towers I think um, our guest said yeah no we're going to try and find mines and if not we're going to dig down and do it that way which does actually make sense Um, 
And then there was a big conversation between Jeremy and Niall on Twitter. Um, Paul also said backup energy was stored in huge spinning weights in French telephone exchanges in the 1950s. And weights were used in London in the 1930s to store hydraulic energy to operate hotel lifts and tower bridges. This is not a new idea. No, the, the principle is not new, but this application is, is relatively new. And the idea of building enormous weights uh, to store energy and gravity, I think that's relatively new. Um, so that was uh, Jill uh, McPherson from uh, Gravitricity was talking about this. And uh, we got an email in to say, hi, Jonathan, it's from Brendan McGrath. He says, hi, Jonathan, I've been listening to your podcast with Jill. Just to let you know, I've been working on a similar project since 2013. I started this coincidentally at the same time as Gravitricity, although we have no connection and our approaches to the central system are different. To date, I've received substantial funding from Innovate UK. And although COVID has slowed down progress, the project is still alive been granted patents in Australia and Europe. My Irish company, Ocean Renewables Limited, holds the IP rights and I'm currently in discussions with the UK Coal Authority to access a disused mine shaft and construct a large demonstrator. Thought it might be interested for you that to note an Irish company was also working on the technology. Incidentally, my demonstrator will be suspending a mass of nearly 2,000 tonnes in a shaft of 600 metre depth. That's so cool. And I wonder if that is that in Ireland the, the, where the demonstrator is. Yeah, it does be great to, It'd be great to go see it. <laughs> it would, yeah. That, that absolutely. I think it's a really cool idea. That's from Brendan from anyenergysrs.com if you're interested. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. That's it from us on this week's Future Brief. Thanks to producer Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunton, Hugo da Silva on sound. Thanks also to uh, Paul Sifra and Matthew, who were putting the live show together on Wednesday. And thanks very much to TU Dublin Grange Gorman for hosting us at the Science Foundation Ireland for supporting the show. And that's it for this week's Future Proof. I'll see you uh, on Tuesday with more on your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.